Welcome to Across the Line. Today, we've got former Premier League player Dean Hammond on the program, the second Premier League player to grace us on the show. And today, we get a real look into the realities of becoming a pro footballer. You know, there's plenty of highs, plenty of lows, plenty of uh, twists and turns along the way. But with Dean, we get a real glimpse of what it's like to, to make it through and make it to the top tier of football in the United Kingdom. And Chris, of course, you guys go way back with Dean, uh, all the way back to Brighton. Yeah, so Dean and I were in the youth team together. Uh, we actually haven't spoken in probably near on 20 years. So it was great to, to finally catch up. We've, we've been speaking recently over, over social media. Um, and he just has this, this sort of career that I think will resonate with a lot of the viewers, with a lot of the listeners. Um, a lot of trials, a lot of tribulations, hardships, and, and ultimately overcoming that um, to, to, to play in the Premier League. So I think um, a lot of the listeners and the viewers will, will appreciate that and um, will connect with that. And, and I'm hoping, although it's a long one, um, they'll really enjoy it. It'll be interesting to, as well, you know, you guys get a glimpse of the kind of footballing background that Chris grew up in uh, back in England. You know, you get a glimpse of the environment they grew up in and uh, sort of the baptism of fire that was necessary for them at, at that time. It'd be interesting to hear as well if you guys have any thoughts on the environment that they grew up in and the environment contrasty that footballers grow up in today. There's plenty of things to unpack in this episode. And if you enjoy it, please do subscribe to the show on YouTube, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. And uh, look for us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and we're on Twitter. Without further ado, we've got Dean Hammond on this Football Friday. Another treat here on Across the Line today. It's the second time that we've got a uh, Premier League caliber player on the show. Uh, we've got Neil Etheridge in the past. Today, we've got Dean Hammond on the program. Oh, How's it going, well. Dean? How are you? Doing all right. Uh, you are currently where right now? In England? Yes, in England, in uh, uh, sunny Sussex in England. All right. Things do, doing all right over there? Yeah, very good. It's um, interesting times. It's a little bit different at the moment. Um, but no, my family and my friends are healthy, so I'm grateful. Uh, over here in the Philippines, uh, things are about to open up a little bit on Monday. Chris, how do you feel about this news? I can't wait, mate. I cannot wait to uh, get out and actually do something. It's been a long, well, it's three months now we've been in lockdown. So uh, my kids just then out playing football, um, riding the bikes the last few days, which have been great. But yeah, fingers crossed in the next now and uh, and actually get back on the training field in, in some way, shape or form. Let, let's see how that transpires in the next uh, next few days with the government hopefully easing some of these restrictions man it's been amazing over the last uh, few months you know obviously it's it's far from ideal our situation at the moment but we're getting a real opportunity to speak to some very interesting people from all over the world and today we've got a friend of yours dean hammond on the show yeah I, i'm actually really really excited for this one um i, I'm, I was trying to work it out dino when, when we last spoke because I'm, I'm guessing it's about 18 years, something like that. Yeah, it's got to be about that time, mate. It's been a long time. And a lot's happened since then. A lot's happened. So um, can I just start off? I'm a bit resentful of the whole Premier League, only one Premier League calibre person. I've been on the show the whole time. <laughs> That's a bit out of order. Like, you know, I didn't get to play there, but the fact, you know, calibre-wise, I think I was there. But whatever. I think, I think we'll start with the interview now because I think that's a little bit of a misconception. Um, but no, so, so basically, for the, for the viewers, for the listeners who don't know, um, 
Dean and I were in the Brighton Academy together. Um, I think you signed when you were like 11 or something, 11, 12 years yeah, old, is that right? 11 years old, yeah, 11 so, years old. So, so, so I came about a year after. So Dean's the age group above me at Brighton. But I, I want to start at the beginning anyway. But um, before we start, I, I just want to touch on my first session as a trialist at Brighton. He probably don't remember this. But um, I was, I think, 11 or 12. I just started secondary school and I, I got the invitation to join the club. So... I go to the training ground, which is in uh, which is in Seaford, the old AstroTurf. Yeah, Seaford, yeah. Seaford, remember that? Oh, yeah, absolute pleasure dome, that place. It was like a concrete slab <laughs> with a slither of AstroTurf on top with a bunch of sand on top. And, uh, yeah, like an awful, awful training field. So I do, uh, yeah, just, just do the first session. At the end, it was a bit of a mixed bag, wasn't it, in those days? You, you didn't really necessarily train in your age group. It was a bit of a mixed bag of, of individuals. And I've just seen this kid, and the, he's the first name that I picked up was Dean. Dean was the first person I picked up on. And the one thing he did, which I stole, and I still would use until I finished my playing days, was he was playing no-look passes from the very first session. So he was about 11 years old, 12 years old, and he's playing these no-look balls. And I was like, who is this guy? He's unbelievable. So I want to kind of start there, really. Like, how did you... How did you start playing? Like, was it was it a case of just playing with your mates at school down the park? Like, what what was your first introduction to the game? Yeah, exactly that, Chris. It was uh, friends, uh, family playing in the garden with my parents. Um, when we were younger, there's a little bit more restrictions. We didn't start uh, the age group as um, as young as they do now in the academies and um, actually playing in teams. So it was playing with friends. Uh, my mum and dad were always interested in football, so I was always watching football on TV. Um, and just had a real interest straight away. It was no, no one had to ask me to play football or do you want to go in the garden or do you want to come out in the streets? I was out there. I was the first out there with the ball, ready to play, last one to come in. So it just started from there, really, just the interest in football. Um, there wasn't as much football on TV then, so you had to play it more to entertain yourself, which is, I think was a benefit to us. Um, so it just started from there. My love of the game started from there and I just... Yeah, it just grew. But um, then no-look passes, mate. I don't think that was uh, intentional. <laughs> credit there. Well, yeah, maybe, mate. Maybe just a really bad misplaced pass. Um, did you do Sunday League? Did you did you go through the whole Sunday League process? It was your first club. Yeah, so my first club was... I'm born and bred in Hastings. Um, so my first club was a uh, club called Spartan, which actually my dad uh, was the manager. So that was, was a it? bit of... Um, yeah, a bit of an interesting time because when you're younger, it's fine. You listen to your dad, you take everything in. As you get a bit older, you think, mm, not so sure about that, dad. A <laughs> uh, few arguments on the line and everything. But no, my dad started a, uh, a Sunday league team with me and my friends. Um, and Chris McPhee was in the same, uh, yeah. same team, who was also in the Brighton Academy. Um, so yeah, it started from there. And it was just going through the system until we got to 11 years old. Um, and similar to yourself, we picked up a, was playing for, I think it was Hastings and Bexhill, which is like a bit of a district team, a step yeah. up from Sunderley. And there's a Brighton scout there, and we had actually a really strong team that year. And he picked seven of us out to come over for a trial at Seaford. And it all Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Of the, of the seven guys, anyone else got taken on? Obviously, I remember yourself and Chris McPhee, we played with for, for, for a while. Anyone else got picked up from that group? From that team, not in terms of going to the youth team like we did. But no. It was, uh, do you remember James Penfold? 
Yeah, Jimmy Penfold. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah, Jim, so yeah. He he was from the same same team. Um, I can't think who else, Chris. It wasn't there wasn't no. anyone else. It wasn't. We had a strong. It was a strong team, but a few of them. Once you know what it's like. Once you get to the academies, everyone's a good player. Everyone's yeah. a good footballer. So you yeah. you really find out who's got some ability when you step up that that next level. Yeah. And just just for for the listeners and the viewers, um, you went on to high school at William Parker, which is quite a it's a bit of a production line, isn't it? A lot of good footballers have, have, have come from that school. Um, yeah, you're one of the most famous, but you aren't the most famous, are you? Because there there is <laughs> the more famous son of William Parker than than, than you, isn't there? There is, yeah. So, the, uh, the, yeah. Um, the record holder for the Premier League, Gareth Barry, comes from William Parker. So, um, which which was great for us because we had someone to look up to. You know, he was in Aston Villa's first team at 18. So I think I was yeah. just leaving school then. So, um, no, exceptional player. Really, really good player. Do you, do you remember training with him at Brighton? Because there was probably a bit of an overlap there, was there not? Where he was still at Brighton before he went to Villa? Yeah, so I think there was a, I think there was a year where he was there and I was there. Or maybe yeah. just six, six months. Um, and their age group was really strong. Yeah, really um, good. I, Really, really good. They were they used to because at Seaford you had the Astro pitch. You start at the you start at the top and you work your way down in the ages. <laughs> yeah. So we yeah. used to watch him and stuff. But no, there was probably six months until he left to go to to Aston Villa, and then you know the rest is history. But no, he yeah. was some player. You could see. I mean, really, you could really see from him that he was a player. He just yeah. had so much. Yeah, he just had so much time on the ball. He was never quick. He was solely and dominantly left-footed, so I can't remember him using his right foot. <laughs> but he would never, he would never, he would never bring an imbalance. He would always have time, always have space, um, and he was just yeah, brilliant. Didn't know him too well as a person or as a, no. uh, as a player because he was a couple of years older than me. But he was always around the school when you'd watch the school games and stuff like that. So no, yeah. he was a player to look up to. I'm quite was he a interested. bit of a miss. Sorry, go ahead. Before we go on with, with Gareth and, and as you move on into your career, I was quite interested to know, you made an impression with Chris right off the bat there, Dean, while you guys were very young. What was Chris like at the Brighton Academy? Yeah, Chris was, uh, <laughs> Chris was a very good player. Very, do you know what, Chris? Technically, fantastic. I mean, he used, used to love tricks, skills, um, taking people on, um, probably nutmeg me a few times in training, quite a few times. Um <laughs> So no, he's a very, very good player, very talented. You're not required to say that because you're on the show, Dean. You know, honesty is uh, the best policy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am honest now. He's a good, Chris is a very good player, very good. Player. <laughs> Oh, he's just making up for your misgivings on the intro, Jing, I think. He's just trying to build me up after you knocked me down from the get-go. You know, we'll probably touch on a little bit about that later on, Jing, as well, because it's something I've, I've, I've noted and I want to discuss and compare and contrast a little bit with Dino later. Um, but obviously, you, you then work your way into, into that, the academy, come through the system. Um, how did you find the academy? Like, because obviously that was quite a tumultuous period, wasn't it? I mean, I was, like I said, I was only a year younger than you, but there was a lot of issues going on off the field. Uh, for those who don't know, we, we were based in Brighton, but we're having to ground share with uh, Gillingham, so we didn't have a home base at the time. So there was, it, was, it was actually a reality around, I would say, that mid-90s period where we didn't even know if there was going to be a football club. So, you know, what, what was your sort of memories of being in the club at, at that particular time? In terms of from until we joined the youth team, so from 11 yeah. to 16. 
Yeah, was, like um, a challenge, Chris, because like you said, there was no finances at the football club. There was no budget. The youth team wasn't important to the football club or the academy wasn't because, like you said, they didn't know whether there was going to be a football club. So there was no, there was no future plan. There was no um, trying to build the football club. They were in survival mode. Um, and we, I mean, at my age group, I was a year above you, but we used to get beat quite heavily um, by, by the teams, you know, the London boys, the local teams. And that was difficult to take personally and collectively because you could, you're always comparing yourself to other players and you're thinking, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm, I'm way off this standard. I'm never, you know, we're losing to QPR, we're losing to West Ham. Um, they, they had young boys, but they were like, they felt like they were men. Um, not only their physique, but the, the way they played the game and the way they got coached. So we were we were a long way behind, I think. But this it, it changed rapidly. I mean, up until probably fifteen, I think that's when Dean Wilkins and Martin Hindrell came in, and they made a huge difference. Even though the budget didn't change, there wasn't finances. Just their mentality, their coaching, their vision for the game, the the importance they saw in a club that financially couldn't buy players, but what's the best way to go? Let's produce our own. And they they made a real change to the football club. Did you ever think about leaving? Did you ever have an opportunity to leave? Yeah, I had an opportunity to leave when I was um, 14, uh, funny enough. One, I went for a trial at Aston Villa. Um, so through the same scout that took Gareth Barry to Aston Villa. Um, mm. He was a local scout in Hastings. So I went up there for a two-day trial. That didn't quite work out. I didn't get offered to be taken on there. Um, but the same summer, I went to Nottingham Forest and I got offered, I actually got offered the rest of my 14 to 16 at the uh, academy or school of excellence, yeah. as it was. Um, yeah. And then I got offered a two-year YTS um, at Nottingham Forest. But I wasn't confident enough to leave home then. I didn't want to leave home. I didn't want to make a change then. I was quite... I don't know if you picked up on it, Chris. I was, I was, I was quite confident on the pitch. I was quite reserved off it a little bit. Um, maybe being sharp, wasn't massively confident, confident in my character or personality. On the pitch, no problem. Get me a football. Yeah, yeah. Play, play the game. I'm, I'm happy. Until, until I was comfortable with people. If I was yeah. comfortable with people and friendly with people, um, I've, I've felt at, at ease. But before that, and that was probably one of the reasons why I didn't want to go. So, um, and we had because... Vic Bragg. You remember Vic Bragg at Brighton? Yeah. I, I, mean, yeah. I, used to, I used to love working with Vic. I used to love it. So he was a big reason why I didn't leave then as well. It's quite interesting. I'm guessing you didn't have the same offer on the table from Brighton at the time because there probably wasn't no, a foresight no. from the club, right? So that's quite. Year I mean, to year. Yeah. yeah, year to year, wasn't it? And, and I think, yeah. looking back, that was quite... I mean, obviously, you, you you have to trade off that living at home, being with, you know, in, in familiar surroundings with actually... You're a very single-minded individual, so you want to become a professional. That's probably... The, that would have been the... Career-wise, that probably would, would have been the most, you know, progressive move for you at that time. Why didn't you it, take it? It would have. It would uh... Exactly. It was that. It was leaving home. It was as simple as leaving yeah. home. I went. I went to. We went up to Nottingham Forest. It was quite a good. It was. It was a good setup at Nottingham Forest as well. We went up for three days actually, um, and our parents came up for three days. So the club put us all the players that were in trial, and the trial was with the age group that were already at Nottingham Forest. So they were comparing right. you with the players I had. 
So I suppose the players that were there were, were on a training um, program, and the trials yeah. would come in and we would join in. So we were actually playing against them, um, and we would all stay at a, uh, I think it was a university at the time as well, away from your yeah. parents. Um, no, it was really, really good. Um, and I got offered the terms after the first day, actually. Um, so I didn't oh, actually, really? I, yeah. had to do, I had to do the three days, but I, the first day um, they offered, they spoke to my dad and offered um, the contract. But it was just the fact of, at that time, I was a Hastings lad and not really left Hastings except to come to Seaford and Brighton or in a way from <laughs> yeah. London. Nottingham yeah. Forest seemed like the other side of the world to me, or uh, Nottingham. Um, and I just... I didn't have the confidence to leave, to be honest, Chris, if I'm honest. I didn't yeah. have the confidence to think if I leave home, what effect it was going to have on me. And I was, I wanted to stay at home and it was as simple as that. I think that's really interesting, Jing. Like we've talked a lot, haven't we, about youth football on, on the podcast. And I think one of the things that is massively overlooked, certainly in this part of the world, compared to, say, uh, you know, Europe, South America, is kids are having to make real serious life decisions at such a young age. You know, and then obviously it has a huge bearing on, on how they end up progressing as a professional or, or obviously not progressing. Because, you know, obviously on the surface, that's an unbelievable opportunity to go to a club. I mean, Forest are a well-established club in the UK. I mean, they, they'd won, they've won European Cups and far bigger than, than Brighton was at the time. You know, you've you got to remember this is probably what, mid-90s, Dean? Mid to late 90s, I suppose, at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah you know, and, and I think... You know, there's 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 a lot of pressure on young kids to make these these big decisions, and I know, like I said, we touched upon this ourselves in our podcast. But uh, it's it's really tough. It's really tough to ask people of of that age gene to to make such important decisions. I think I'm kind of in a similar boat with with Dean on this one. You know, I'm not very familiar or not very comfortable getting taken out of my comfort zone in that kind of way. When you hear of here in the Philippines, for example, high school students. Uh, freshmen, so that puts them at like 13 years of age, being asked to leave um, what would be a province to go into a metropolitan uh, kind of living, and to be asked to live with 13 strangers in a dorm room in an environment that you've never been in. That's that sounds terrifying, you know. And then you're going to be judged <laughs> on your on your performance on the pitch, and that's all that anybody cares about, and they don't really take into consideration what your personal life is like or how you're going along with that or how things are, um, co- how you're coping with those type of uh, things in that environment. So I can imagine that's, yeah, that's, that, that seems very difficult. And I, I completely understand the, the, the reasoning behind not wanting to go and make that step, even though career-wise, that sounded like a fantastic opportunity. I think one of the things I'd like to move on to, Dean, is, is obviously you progressed through to the to the youth team. So we all, up until 16, you're just part of that or centre of excellence as it was known then. But really to the sort of the real benchmark to, to see whether or not you were capable of progressing to play professional football was if you got offered a scholarship at 16. So that's the time and the age when you leave high school. Um, and then we were going full-time into what essentially was a, a men's professional environment. What What was your... What was your memories of, of being part of that scholarship program? In terms of the scholarship and the youth team, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was um, when you're solely talking about um, us younger players being together, us players from 16 to 19 being together, us being a group, us being a team. 
I loved every minute of that. The training with Dean Wilkins and Martin Hinchwood was brilliant. Um, it was quite ruthless, um, but in a, an edu educational way. They were giving you life skills as well as um, um, educating you on football. But, I mean, at Brighton, again, we come back to uh, the academies. It's not... It, it's called an academy, but at the time it wasn't like that. We, I mean, we used to train near the first team. We used to be near the first team dressing room. It was you coming from a 16, I was a 16 year old boy and I was coming into an environment where there was men and I mean, proper men as well. So in terms of that, Chris, I found that difficult. That was an eye opener and that was pretty intimidating if I'm honest. Um, but when we were on our own and just as a group, as us younger players, I absolutely loved it. One of the best parts of, or best times of my life, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with the whole, it was intimidating. Like, and like, I can't really paint the picture for people outside of people who were in that environment. Like, you go from obviously being at school where you're probably the top dog, you know, everyone thinks you're going to be the next big thing. And then you are literally bottom of the pile, surrounded by just, and by men, I mean men. They, that, yeah. Especially that group of lads at Brighton at the time were, they were men's men, weren't they? And and it could yeah. be really, really, really intimidating. And and they definitely they didn't pull any punches. They, they didn't care whether you're a 15, 15 year old schoolboy or, or or you know the the nephew of the you know academy director. It didn't matter. You you know it was nah. it was pretty intimidating. But what what was it about the academy or the scholarship experience that you enjoyed the most? Like what were the things that cause you you talked about there? Like Dean uh, Dean Wilkins and Martin Hinchwood would provide us with like things other than football, more kind of life skill stuff essentially but, but what was it about it that you particularly enjoyed i love the discipline for a start i love the um probably the, the the routine as well so being told where to be what to do they they were basically basically they because they were so good they give us a format how to become a professional footballer i think that yeah. they basically they were both ex-pros um both have been in the game both seen ups and downs in their career in terms of martin Hinchwood. I don't know if you knew much about his career, but was a fantastic footballer and then really suffered with injuries and his career was cut short. So he had them life experiences. Dean Wilkins was a very talented player, but had the life experiences of trying to look up to an older brother who was uh, an icon, an international player, captain of England. Um, so he had to deal with that. Um, and he was a great coach and a, and a great player, um, but had ups and downs in his career. So... In terms of on the football pitch and what they taught us, the technical side and the coaching that we had is still some of the best coaching I'd had through, I would have say I had through my whole career. And I worked with a lot of different managers, different football clubs, uh, the type of coaches they were um, and how dedicated they were to us as well. Because I think if you look at it, and I've spoke to Dino quite a lot and you probably have as well, Chris, he kind of lives and breathes football and he gave up his life really his family life to, and we became his family. He was so dedicated to that. Um, and I think we were so fortunate in that respect. So I loved, I loved my third, we had three years of the YTS, my first year, my second year, my third year. So again, and the experiences you go through in terms of playing football, but having to do jobs, clean balls, having to clean boots, having to clean the training ground, um, being tested by first team players, being tested by the first team manager, I loved all that. And unfortunately, um, wrongly or rightly, that's not in the game anymore. And I think that's missing a little bit because uh, I think it was a little bit survival of the fittest at times, which is 
not right. But I think there's there is something in that to give you the mentality if you have to go into professional sport. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things I wanted to really talk to you about was that because I heard you talk about it on on um, on the Brighton podcast that you did a few weeks back, and um, I'm quite conflicted with it. I'm quite conflicted as to what is a better pathway for a young player to kind of go through. Like it was a baptism of fire for us, but I think in going through that hot oven, it, it all made us become young men really, really quickly. But by the same token, I'm, 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 I, I sometimes think to myself, like I remember there'd be days where, you know, we would have to sweep out the changing rooms or we'd have to clean the boots or clean the, the gaffer's car, for example. And I'm thinking, I'd rather be on the training pitch working on my crossing or I'd, you know, yeah. I'd rather spend a little bit more time doing, doing the additional stuff that I could do to improve my game. So I'm quite conflicted with that. I don't know what your take is on that. Like if you had the choice, would you prefer to go through what we went through or would you prefer to be in the environment that academy kids find themselves in now? Mars as that would be, there needs to be a balance. I think there's definitely value in both. So like you say, when you, when you, you go through the oven and you get you get te- we were getting tested every day, whether it was from <laughs> Dean Wilkins, Martin Hinchwood, the pros, the first team manager, anyone, the, the medical staff, we were getting tested every day as footballers and as as people, really. So I think there is some real value in that. Yes, not everyone adapts to that and not everyone likes that approach. So you could potentially lose players from the game that can't handle that so their ability doesn't come out their confidence gets hit their personality gets hit so they can't flourish um, but I do agree with you saying would I like to spend more time on the training ground would I like to had an individual program instead of sweeping the changing room or cleaning the gaffer's car yeah I do agree with that as well that could have made me a better player definitely could have improved my game better but again Chris would we have done it this is the thing you know Within that, within that dressing room, our, not our dressing room, within the changing room, within the environment, would we have been brave enough to go, right, I'm going to go out and train next year? Because we would have been dragged back in by the first team. We would have been dragged back in by the first team manager. So there's lots of arguments for both. I just think it's gone too far the other way now. Yeah. I mean, it was too, in our day, it was probably too far the other way. It needs yeah. to be somewhere in the middle. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's... it's- it's really interesting you say that. Really, really interesting. Like, I had this conversation with a with a coach. Uh, he's from Sussex, coached in America now, but he knows both of us. And um, I'm going to have a bit of a long-winded story now, but there was a point to it at the end. And uh, and he said to me, because he was talking about my my situation at the club, and I said, look, I think had the circumstances been different, yeah, maybe maybe I would have made the grade. But in the end of the day, I don't think I worked hard enough in order to progress at that club at that time. Like, and I, quite, I have to live with that. I have to live with that with myself. Unfortunately for me, it sort of worked out later on in my career. But, you know, I have to live with knowing that I didn't make the most of the opportunity that was presented with me. And then he came and said, well, maybe if the environment was different, maybe if it was like it is now, do you think you'd been, have a better chance of being successful? And I said, well, I said, well, maybe, because in terms of the style of play, is very different now yeah. compared to how yeah. it was. Not that Dino wasn't progressive. Dean, Dean was very progressive at the time, but the game's changed a lot in those 20 years. You know, there's, there's, the formations would probably suit more creative players like myself. The environment would be probably more nurturing. So I, I, said, I said, maybe, but I don't really know. I said, I, I can't really say. But the one thing I did say, Dino, I, I said this. I said, one player who I think would make, it, would make it then, and he did, and would make it today, and would make it in any era, was you. 
And I said, one thing about you, one thing about you that I really admired was you, you, you had this sort of quiet confidence, but also this single-mindedness, I think, about wanting to be a professional footballer. Like, there weren't as many of those people in that change room that had your kind of mindset. You know, I look back to when we would do fartlek runs, for example, and you would always be at the front. You'd always be on the shoulder of whoever was at the front. And even if a first-team player was like, get him back, get him back, no, you'd, you'd still stay at the front. Whereas I would be more like, yeah, all right, I'll probably just stick in the pack and just not try to, you know, create any kind of chaos. But so my question really is, were you always like that? Or was it a case of the environment forwarding in that sort of single-minded and determined to want to become a professional? It's a good question because... Relating back to what we spoke about the Nottingham Forest thing, where I wasn't willing to maybe take the next step or take a bit of a risk, I think by not doing that, I did regret it. I regretted not doing it. Now, it worked out okay in the end, but I was always, like I mentioned before, when it came to football or fitness or anything like that, in terms of my mentality, I was just confident and I was willing to do whatever it took. Now, I don't think I was one of the most talented players. I didn't have the most ability, but one thing I did have, I was I was willing to give it everything I had. Now, for for example, you saying when we were on the runs and our first team, but I used to get threatened every day. This is the mentality we were in, like first team players, because they know there's an up-and-coming youngster coming through that's going to take their livelihoods, it's going to take their profession. Now, if I'm fitter than them and I'm a better player than them, they're going to be threatened. Now, I didn't, it didn't affect me why we were doing it. Now, coming off the training ground and going back into the dressing room or the canteen, yep. worried, really worried. I used, to, I used to hate it. I used to stay in our dressing room as long as we could. I didn't want to train with the first team because I knew it was going to be a challenge. But I always found something in myself that I've got one chance and this could be it. So every day I'm going to be giving it my best. Um, I'm going to try my hardest. And that was that was my t- mentality, really. I just was going to work as hard and get everything out of myself as I possibly could, and, and that that was it. It was a, it was a simple formula. There was no um, <laughs> intelligence really about it. There was no well, I'm going to plan this out and I'm going to look into the future. And I was just like every day, single day, I'm going to give it everything. Um, and luckily enough, you know, I got a bit of luck along the way. I got a few breaks here and there, but no, that was that was why I think potentially I had a, a long career in the game because I've just, and it, that continued all the way through whether I was 17 till I was 33, 34 when I finished. Now at the end of my career, it was the worst thing I possibly could have done because I worked too hard. But <laughs> during that, during that period, it worked for me. And that was, that was my formula just to work hard every single day as possible. Could. And that's why Jing, and that's why I said that to the coach who I spoke to, like, he would make it in any era, Jing. He would make it. He would make it in twenty years' time, forty years' time. It doesn't matter because you move with the times. But when someone has got that sort of mentality, when someone's got that determination and drive, they'll make it. And I, I, we'll touch upon it later, Dino. But I, I know you sort of went. You you had backward steps, and you had you, you had had to go out on loan before you got your your move. But um, sorry, before you got your chance. But I still think even if you got released by Brighton, I still think you would have made a step down and you would have come back up. That's, that's, that's the other thing I said to the coach. I said, maybe even if you hadn't made it at, at the club, circumstances were different. I still think that I always thought even if you had to take a step back to come back up, you'd, you, you would end up at the pinnacle. That's, that's how I saw it. Um, but, Jing, it's really interesting that we talk about that it is mindset. I mean, it's, it's something that we're, we, we've touched upon with some of the elite players that we've had on the podcast, hasn't it? I mean, Neil 
because Neil talks about it a lot with him. And and it's not always it's not always bravado. It, it's because sometimes that that comes to the surface. Like people think everyone's going to be this super, supreme confident, um, you know, strutting about the place, knowing that they're going to make it. But Neil was talking about the same sort of things, Jing, wasn't he? On our on our, on our interview, that he actually has a lot of in, insecurities, and that was actually conversely what what drove him. Yeah, you know, it's not like they're all fighter pilots. It's not all A-type personalities, but it's seemingly though there is always a confidence when you're on the pitch. But what I'm interested in when you guys were talking earlier about the sort of the environment that you guys were, were brought up in, when you guys were in the first teams and in more senior positions, you guys didn't perpetuate that kind of environment um, moving forward, or did you? Actually, I'm, I'm quite interested to know um, how you guys changed what the life was like for individuals who were coming through? I mean, personally, myself, um, I would try to do the opposite. So I would always try and make younger players welcome. I would, I would enjoy the challenge. So if a younger player was coming through, because in terms of mentality, I felt that made me better as well, because I'd want to improve again. And I always felt I could learn off whether it was a younger player or an older player. Um, and the experiences I went through personally um, of the challenges... I wanted to, I didn't want younger players going through that. I didn't want them to feel intimidated or scared. Um, I wanted them to embrace the challenge because I always felt it would make me better. So it could have been a selfish thing because I wanted to make myself better and improve myself, but I would never use someone else to better myself or um, think, oh, all right, I'm threatened here. He's a better player than me. He's going to take my position. No, I'd embrace the challenge and go, okay, that's good. You're going to make me go one, two, three percent further or harder. And if I couldn't make the grade, great. I learned a lesson about myself. Right, this is my limit. I Maybe, like Chris mentioned, I have to go to another club now. I have to step down to come back up again. It's No, I was always very conscious of making people feel welcome because we didn't always get that, Chris, did we? No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely not. And I think... Like I said, it's very hard to to describe just just how sort of cutthroat that environment was. But you know, for, for, for obviously for, for yourself, it, it led you to you know go through that baptism of fire and come out much stronger at, at the other end. But one of the things I want to touch upon about that, because it wasn't it wasn't a straight line for you, was it, to get into the Brighton's first team? Sort of going back to your questioning a little bit, it because you made your debut at what 16, 17? seventeen. How, how old yeah. were you? Seventeen. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wow. I, I, I've got. I, so you went. I remember you got. I remember the story. So you basically got called up, up. You went to the first team. Then you had to go home and get your suit, didn't you, or something? And then you came yeah. in. Was, yeah. was that the day? Was that the game where something happened? Like your car broke down, or something? There was an issue with it, and you you came. You showed up to the game late. Was that your debut? or Was that later on? That was later on. So that wasn't my debut. Oh, okay. That, but but in terms of that happened again. So I made my debut under Mickey Adams as a manager. Um, came on against Cardiff for about 20 minutes, I think. And then I wasn't part of the first team plans for a while after that. And then got a chance again when I think Peter Taylor was manager. Peter Taylor came okay. in. So it was maybe a year, two years later. No, a year later, 18 months. So I was still in the youth team. And yeah, I had to go home, same scenario. I got home, get my suit. Mum and dad would bring me back this time where previously I got the train back over. Um, yeah, and our car broke down on the way. <laughs> so... So I remember getting back. I was, I was, I was, I was thinking, and I thought I had a chance of being on the bench or even playing. And so got my suit, sitting in the car, car broke down. Eventually, after hours, Dad got it going again. We got to the ground, and I'm running through, you know, the with them, running through the car park, running through the crowds, 
got to the got to the dressing room, tried to go into the dressing room, but couldn't get in. So the door, so I'm, so I'm banging on the door, so I'm thinking, trying to shove the door. Anyway, the assistant manager's standing the other side. So usually when they're doing a team talk, they don't want anyone coming in, like someone from the opposition, an official, uh, even a tea, a tea lady to bring the tea in. So I'm smashing against the door, more aggressive, I'm, I'm worried that something's going to happen, pushing, pushing. Eventually, I smash it and I move the assistant manager. It bursts open. I come into the dressing room and just all the players are sitting there laughing at me, looking at me, managers like staring at me. I was thinking, oh, no, could this get any worse? Anyway, sat down. I wasn't even on the bench, wasn't even involved. I had to, so I, and it was a rainy cold night. I sat in the stand in my suit at Whitting. There's no cover. I got drenched. I was just thinking, right, is this professional football? Is it brilliant? <laughs> this is great. Yeah, interesting time. Oh, brilliant! Uh, mate, I, I I couldn't remember all the details of the story. It's much better how you how you told it. So I appreciate you. you <laughs> I appreciate you telling it. That was amazing. Because um, yeah, I mean, you had that period, didn't you? Sort of two years almost. Yeah, where you didn't hadn't, hadn't played the game after making your debut, and then I'm guessing you played a few games before you went out on loan to to Aldershot. Is that is that right? Had you, had you played any games thereafter? Before you went on your yeah, so show, when yeah, so when I turned from where we finished our YTS um, program contract, um, I signed a professional contract under Peter Taylor. He then got he then left in the summer, and Martin Hinchwood became manager. Our old youth team, so he actually Martin actually became manager when we just got promoted. We we're in the championship, um, so I played a few games under under Martin, probably four or five games, and then he got the sack, and Steve Koppel came in. Steve Koppel was quite honest with me, saying that I'm not really interested in playing the younger players. I'm going to bring in some experienced older heads because we're in a relegation battle. So I fell away from the from the first team fold. Didn't really train with the first team. I was back training with the reserves and the youth team uh, a little bit, and then eventually went out on loan uh, to Aldershot, which was not something I was massively keen on at the time. I was a little bit worried. Um, who was the gaffer? Mark, Mark McGee? Was Mark McGee in charge at the start? Mark, Mark McGee was manager then. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wasn't, again, wasn't in his plans. Um, we weren't, but we were doing well in the league. So I couldn't really argue. This is the problem. The first team, were the, during my period there, where I wasn't playing, were winning games. So there was no, I had no grounds to suggest why I should be playing, even though I thought I'm good enough to play. Um but ended up at Aldershot. But like I say, I wasn't too keen on going. I wasn't... It was Dean Wilkins that persuaded me to... I'd fallen out of love with the game a little bit. Um, really? And he just persuaded... Yeah, a little bit. Just because... I just... I felt as though... Anything in life, I feel as though you get your just rewards. I felt as though I was working hard. I was dedicated. I love my profession. I go in every day and train hard, whether it's with the youth team or first team. And I just wasn't getting the opportunity. I wasn't getting the chance. I wasn't getting a... Um, a loan move that I thought I justified um, but you don't get that in football you only get it in football you know you get an opportunity and you just have to take an opportunity and Dean Wilkins persuaded me to go to Aldershot just to go and play some first team games go and experience a first team environment again go and experience a first team match where uh, it's important you're playing in front of a crowd things are expected of you so I went with a heavy heart thinking I wasn't going to come back, if I'm honest. That was why I didn't want to go, because I didn't want to leave. But it worked out brilliantly, and I loved my time at Aldershot. I really did. 
Because they were League Two at the time, right? No, they were in the National League, so they weren't even the professional. Oh, really? Oh, well. Yeah, oh. it was twice a week. I used to train at all shot on a Tuesday and Thursday evening. Um, and one of the, the Tuesday nights was just running around the pitch. It was just a fitness evening. So it was really, really different. But it's, <laughs> it's them experiences that actually made me realise, no, I want to be a professional footballer. Nothing against all the shot or the non-league game. I just wanted to stay within the professional game because I didn't want to be training twice a week and then having to go and find a new career or a new job. I want I had I was still contracted to Brighton to a professional football club. So that experience really, really spurred me on. Cause you then did you did that a short stint at Leighton Orient, didn't you? You did a did another yeah. loan move there. So they were in League Two, is that right? So they were in League Two yeah. at the time. Yeah. And then you came back to Brighton and found yourself in this awkward predicament right so yeah. you're basically given three months to save your career is, is that a fair yeah. fair assumption yeah, yeah, talk, yeah talk me through that I mean that that must have been a real strange conversation and how did you sort of get your mind right to prepare yourself to do what you needed to do in, in such a short three-month window well it's a strat- well I was actually offered a year so I was also the year contract halfway through the, no towards the end of that season Okay. The club, got promote, the club got promoted to the championship. I went in and had the end of season meetings like you do with a manager to review what you've done, what potentially the future holds for you. And Mark McGee was the manager and he just said, look, we're not going to give you a year anymore. We'll give you three months. So you either kind of take it or you don't. We want to... And again, I took it as a test, Chris. Like, because we've been tested all through our kids, I took it as, right, okay, you wanted to see how much I actually wanted to be at the club or wanted to be a professional. Um, and I just went home with disappointment um thinking my career was over but my parents were brilliant with me and just said look why don't you just why don't you just give it everything why don't you spend the summer getting as fit as you possibly can get your head straight don't go away on holiday um train during the summer and then go back to pre-season fitter and stronger than you've ever been and give it give it your best and then if you if it doesn't work out at least you can say you took the opportunity and that's what i did and to be honest, at the start, it didn't work out. I, I went back really fit, um, was doing really well in pre-season. Then I picked up a little injury because I overtrained um, and then fell away again. And fortunately enough for me, the first thing weren't doing very well. And I eventually got a, uh, an opportunity and then the rest is history really from there. So what, what were you doing during that pre-season? Sorry, the, the pre-pre-season, so to speak. Because you said there you went away and got yourself really fit. Like, what were you doing? Were you just going out running on your own? Did you did you hire someone to go and work with you? Like, how, how did you get yourself in shape for, for that that month yeah. window before you go back for pre-season? Well, at that time, there wasn't, there wasn't anyone you could probably hire or with the expertise or you would know of that you could train with. So it was, it was just on my own. It was more... I was always fit enough, Chris. I was always strong enough. It was a mentality thing. I had to push myself. I had to find something within my mind to go, okay, I need to, I need to go to the next level then. I need, to, I need to be stronger mentally. And that I found that through training. I found that through working even harder, which obviously made me fitter, which obviously made me stronger. But they weren't the attributes I needed. To, needed. I needed to become mentally stronger. And I needed to get to that point now where I believed in myself. Right, the only person who's going to do this, the only person who's going to change the situation is myself. I'm not going to get any help from the manager. I'm not going to get any help from the players. If I want to get in this first team and I want to be at Brighton, I have to do this myself. And that was a real switch in mentality, real switch of, okay, it's, I felt the full responsibility that it was all, all down to me now. I'm responsible for my outcome of this action. 
whether it means being at Brighton or another football club, I'm going to make myself a professional footballer and really believe that I'm a professional footballer. So that was the mentality I had. And I just, I just, it was nothing, it was no rocket science. I was just running and I was swimming and I was going to the gym. There was no, yeah. I wasn't doing anything special or anything different. That was it. This was around what, 20, 21 for you? Uh, this would have been, yeah, so it would have been 20, 21, yeah. Wow. That's quite a that's quite a spot in your life so early in, you know in in your development as well. Do you think as if the tough upbringing that you guys went through in the academy at Brighton, being in that kind of environment, helped you in that kind of spot? Yeah, yeah, it probably it probably helped me at that point. It hindered me before because that's probably why I felt like I did in terms of confidence and self belief. Because Chris, I tell you, you know. If you were doing well, any player, whether it's one game, ten games, you'd be shot down. You'd be knocked down because people would see you as a challenge or a threat. Mm. Um, so that probably manifested in me a little bit and, and grew in me without me actually knowing. Um, but yeah, in the long run and in terms of changing that situation, um, I finally realised it was down to me, and I finally realised that I, that I need to get, I need to work harder, I need to become stronger. I stopped blaming other people, basically. I think that's that's brilliant because it, I'm guessing that's basically the catalyst for your whole career. It, it, was, yeah. it was basically the springboard for everything else that happened thereafter. So in, in essence, we probably have to thank Mark McGee for, for offering <laughs> you such a such a horrific terms because because by the end of that by the end of that season, you you'd become one of the fulcrums of that of that Brighton team. Yeah, we stayed up that year eventually in the championships, and yeah, I done, yeah. I scored a few goals. I played. Um, I played a few games. Funny enough, and you will laugh, Chris. I was playing left wing, which is no, <laughs> not, my, no, not my strongest position, mate. Okay, well, let's, let's let's stop this here first, right? Okay, I've got to clear this up. Right? I've got because I've got I've got some notes that I've written down here, Jim. Right, so I've got like a, a rough outline of things I want to I want to cover, and in like bold font, like in capital letters, is Dean Hammond, left wing goal scorer. Which I, I'm, I'm kidding you not, right? I'm, I've played with him from the age of eleven. Till I was 19, so at nine years, I don't even remember him scoring a goal in training. Then all of a sudden, <laughs> right? All of a sudden, in the championship, right? Uh, second biggest league in the, in in the UK, and he's scoring goals, playing left wing. I, what on earth was going on there? Can you just talk me through what was the logic in in you playing left wing? I don't know if there's any logic, mate. I think that's just, <laughs> I found myself in that position. It was. It was a it was a narrow left wing. I was I wasn't getting the ball and uh, taking the full back on or overlapping or making runs in behind. It was more it was more the fact I'm trying to think who played right back or right wing. It was more the fact that Gary Hart was playing right wing and he used to put right. a lot of crosses in. You know he was pretty direct, Gary, pretty quick, and just whip the ball in. And Mark McGee just obviously I was six foot one. Just wanted me to come into the back post, wanted me to come into the middle of the box, arrive late from the left wing um, and try and get headers, try and get maybe volleys, try and get across my defender, um, come on the blind spot of the fullback. And that was it, really. There was no tactical genius behind it or let's play three midfield players because we can have more possession. I mean, some guys, we hardly touch the ball. So it was more... And I was fit, Chris. I could get up and yeah. down. So... You know, if we broke and we had one up, I was the one that had to try and get forward. We'd lose it. I'd have to get back. 
believe me, I came off them games shattered. <laughs> so, but I didn't touch the ball much. I think I probably touched the ball with my head more than my foot doing them games. So. But it worked yeah. out, and it was it was fun. It was it was quite enjoyable. Yeah, on, honest to God, Jing. Like when I when I used to see it on Sky Sports, they would do like the you know the the, the setup of the team. And when I started seeing that he was playing left wing, I think I almost retired. I think I did retire for a couple of weeks. I said, I can't. It's no point. I'm just gonna give up. If, it, if he's playing left wing, like oh my god, unbelievable. But it, it, actually, I, I tell a lie. That's not actually strictly true because I used to. There's a couple of players actually, at Brian, who I thought was sort of un- underutilised in the sense that if, if Wilkins is listening to this, he's going to kill me. But like I, Dan was like really, Dan Harding, for example, was really good going forward. But I think he ended up yeah. sort of becoming this either defensive midfield player or left back, maybe through necessity. And he had those qualities as well. But uh, I always felt like you had, you did have more attacking prowess than perhaps maybe some of the tactical deployments would suggest. I mean, we had a lot of attacking players, especially in our youth team, for yeah. example. So may- maybe that was just the role that you undertook because you had a lot of players who just had more, probably more attacking flair. But I always thought like, and I don't know if this was something you worked on or it just happened organically because you just, you tactically, you were, you were really, really good. But did you feel at any point, like were you a, like an attacker when you were younger and you felt you could just sort of bring up some of those goal scoring instincts as you got older or were you just more if I get myself in this position 10 times in the game, one time it's going to fall to me and I've just got to be there to stick it in. Yeah, basically that, law of averages, Chris. I, would, I used to have to try, my job was from that position was always be on the end of crosses, always be in the box. So, I mean, my ratio must have been horrendous because the amount of times I got in the box and the amount of runs I meant to actually making contact with the ball in the box or getting a shot on target or a... Uh, or scoring a goal probably wasn't the best but, <laughs> but I just I went along the lines of the more times I get in there the luckier I get the more opportunities I get and eventually one will go in or one will fall to me in a good position so it was basically that but yeah I mean in answer to your question previously as well yeah I I, I was always one that I was very conscious of, I want to have a career in the game. I want to play. So I was like, I want to be in the team. So if that meant I had to be a defensive midfield player or I had to play left wing or the manager asked me to do a certain role, I was happy to do it because I just wanted to play and I wanted to be a footballer. So yeah, could I could I have scored more goals potentially? But was I happy just playing most weeks? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. And obviously from there, you, I mean, you, you, your career at Brighton just went from strength to strength. Obviously, Dean Wilkins then came in as, as, the, as the head coach, right, the gaffer, um, and brought in like a, a new era, didn't he, really? With, with, I mean, you then became like one of the senior players under, under his helm. And there was like an in, influx of young players that came through. It was like a lot of resurgence of academy players who came through the system, and then all of a sudden, you're you're probably the elder statesman in the in the time in the team. What what was that time like? What was that period like under Dino? Um, when you were sort of all of a sudden, you were the more senior, if not the most senior player on the team. Yeah, it was brilliant, Chris, because it, it went back to the youth team days. Really, we started training like we would in the youth team. Um, the tempo of training went up because the the it was younger players, it was more enthusiastic players. There's nothing against the older players or the players that were there previously, but they were coming towards the end of their Brighton careers. Um, and Dino wanted to change it. Um, I felt more comfortable and happy to take more responsibility as an older player. 
Um, so I think that helped my game and improved my game. Dino obviously made me captain, which was I was very proud to do at the age of 22, 23. Um, so it was really, really good. You can associate it to Chris because it would have been exactly like we were in the youth team. Um, we, in terms of Dino would have us, there would be a real structure. There'd be a real reason and theory behind what we were doing and how we were playing. Pressure Preparation for games really improved in terms of on the training field. We were limited in what we could do off the field because of the finances. Um, but it went, and this will be probably strange to say because we weren't as successful as the teams previously before us because they'd won promotions um, and been in playoffs and stuff. Mm-hmm. The club just became a lot more professional, really did. It became, the approach towards training and games and the reason why we were doing the things we were was really, really, really professional. And you'll know that because of what Dino's like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it's a funny one because I looked at that group and I know you talked about your youth team that you had in your, your, your age group and, and you didn't think it was, it was great. You didn't have the best year. I mean, the, the six of you came through together were decent, but I think that there was a quite a significant drop-off between the six kids that got scholarships and then the, the rest of the group. But I, I always think my age group was unbelievable. I always thought my, our yeah. age group was, 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 was really strong. And um, I know that like that group of lads that came through, like uh, Tommy Elphick's group that came up through the, through the ranks, um, Fraser, that, that group. Um, I think Coxie's what, a couple of, maybe a year or two older, Jake Robinson, that, that, yeah. that crop of players came through all at the same time. And I, I sometimes think, had like Dean been in that scenario when we were coming through at maybe 17, 18, I think things might have been a bit different, like from, for like my group, my, my, my era. I mean, you're, you're, you're older than me, but it's a shame really because when, when we came through, I think in my three years, we had two promotions and a relegation. So there was never really the opportunity to, to blood youngsters in that because they were always either gunning for the title or trying to stay up. Um, but what, I mean, one thing I'm quite in, in, intrigued to find out with Dino, because I, I obviously wasn't at the club at this point, um, what what was he like with with bringing through the, the the younger lads? Like how how did he approach integrating some of the younger lads into that first team? Was he was he more nurturing, or was he still quite uh, was it was it still that kind of baptism of fire like he would be when he was trying to mould us when we were in the in in the youth team? Yeah, baptism of fire definitely. He was um, uh, he wasn't he wasn't easier on them. Um, the one thing he did, he would give them the opportunity because he believed in them. Because he'd seen yeah. them from a young age, he'd seen what they could do, um, and he trusted them. He really trusted in their ability. Now, whether you don't, it's difficult to, to judge a player or know a player until the player's in the environment, as in on a Saturday afternoon in front of 15,000 people um, playing professional football. You just don't know. Um, but he was, Dino was ruthless, I think, but in a good way, a fair, a fair ruthless. If you're good enough, I'll play you. And if you work hard enough, I'll give you an opportunity. There were his two things, really. Um, so with the younger players coming through, they knew if they performed every day, they listened to him, they would get an opportunity. And you're right, you know, your age group, my age group, the age groups around that era at the club, it was so difficult to get in the first team because the first team were doing so well or were really struggling. 
the style of play didn't suit how we played in the youth team. So we didn't play the same way as the first team. We played football. We were progressive in possession. The first team were playing behind and just try and get up the pitch and we're aggressive. So we weren't really yeah. being bred and made for the first team. Now you could say that's Dino's fault yeah. or the manager's fault. Who knows? Or the club's philosophy, that could have been wrong. Um, so it was hard to get an opportunity. You're right. Yeah. But I mean, how, how did you... It's a bit of a touchy subject, I'm sure. I mean, you spoke a little bit about it on the, um, on the podcast that you did the other day. Did you see yourself trying to go through your whole career at Brighton? Like, did, could you see yourself being like a one-club man and trying to progress through the system? Because there came a point in your, in your career at Brighton where it, it seemingly, I don't know, things went a bit sour. Like, I, I know you spoke a little bit about how mm. you were depicted in this way of being this sort of mercenary-type character. Because obviously, you, by this point, you're, you're captain of the club. You were, uh, obviously, like I said, the mainstay of the team, lead, leader of the group. And then you sort of found yourself in this tug of war between the club and uh, yourself, fans, whoever. Um, and I remember it happening, being like, oh, yeah, like, why can't they just get this right? Did, did, did you, did you want to leave? Or, or did it just got to the point where there was too much water under the bridge and you felt, I'm just going to have to get away, get away from this because it's becoming detrimental to my career? Uh, I never wanted to leave. It was never my approach or uh, my idea to leave. I was never thinking, I was never planning to leave um, because Dino, Dino was manager, I was captain. Um, I was enjoying playing with the players we were playing. I was enjoying the style we were playing. I could see the club was improving. Um, but because I was captain and I was playing every week, I wanted a fair contract, Chris. I wanted, you know, I was, I was getting to an age where I suppose money was starting to, I was starting to consider money in terms of, um, obviously I'm in a career and I love playing football for football, but it is it's my livelihood. Um, I knew players within the squad were on a lot more money than me um, and some younger players as well because I was still based on my previous contract. And I was having interest from other clubs of a higher level, uh, of a bigger statues, uh, stature. So my head wasn't turned, but it was like, okay, I want to, if I've got an opportunity to achieve something in my career, I may have to leave. Um, but, you know, the stories that were written that I was saying the club weren't being um, as ambitious as I wanted to, um, suggesting that I was demanding we sign players because I wanted to play in the championship. That was completely wrong. Never suggested that. Never asked for that. I knew the financial situation of the football club. I knew um, the situation and how difficult it was for um, the club. So I didn't ask for anything that wasn't paid to anyone else. And as soon as I knew the club didn't want to play, pay me that um, in terms of from the chairman and the director then yes, I wanted to probably leave and further my career. I didn't feel any loyalties or um, reason to stay after that. And, and the club made that pretty clear. So I think it worked for both of us in the end, but I was obviously made to made the full guy out of the situation. Yeah. Did you find that difficult? Because you've been at the club for so long and then all of a sudden fans start, you know, accusing you of, of things and the media obviously accusing you of things that obviously weren't, weren't true. Like how did you, how did you deal with that? It was hard, yeah. It was difficult because more that it was upsetting to my family because we're from Sussex. Yeah. So obviously Brighton's the biggest club in Sussex and it reflected on my family. Me 
it didn't affect my football or uh, affect my mentality. I was on to, right, okay, I want to concentrate on my career. But it wasn't nice. It wasn't nice seeing things written about me that I couldn't even justify or argue against. Because as a player, you don't come out in the press. You don't protect yourself. You don't um, give your side of the story. So that was hard. Um, and I, I don't know why, Chris. I mean, Usually you see it in clubs. If a, if a youth team player comes through the system, gets into the first team, plays in the first team, becomes captain, he's really appreciated by the fans and loved by the fans or even liked by the fans. For some reason, maybe my style of play, maybe I wasn't exciting enough for the fans. I don't think they really ever took to me. Um, not, in a, not in a bad way. They were always supportive of me in that period, but I never thought... Or maybe it's just my feelings. I never thought I had their, their full support or justified why I was captain or playing regularly. That's how I, it feels, felt to me. I felt that about a lot of youth team players coming through the system, though. I felt a lot of the, a lot of the lads who came through the academy, I felt were vilified by a lot of the fans. I don't know if yeah. you remember this, but Chris McPhee played. He, he played a game under seven. He was probably 17, 18. And he, he, yeah. I think Bobby, Bobby Zamora was injured or something. And, and they sh- just got thrown into the first team he played 80 minutes and it was in this it was an absolute mud heap at, um at the with dean and he worked his socks off and yeah i mean a couple of times the ball bobbled off his shin and that because the surface was terrible and the fans were just on his case and i think if that was if that was an established player like no no one like most clubs i think get behind their youth team players and i think they try to support yeah. one of their own i definitely got that vibe off of brighton i mean what was what was it like with the other lads i mean like with the likes of coxie or jake robinson and these guys like were, were they were they quite ruthless with those guys as well, if they had a bad game? No, see, that, that's what I... There was opposite with them. Because I had... They were quite exciting. They got the yeah. fans off... You know, they got the fans on the edge of the seats. Uh, they made things happen. There was opportunities. They did things that were, um, you know, ex- exciting, basically. Uh, they would score yeah. goals. Um, they would do the better side of the game. They got... I I always felt they got more support. They got more, um, what's the word? Um, they got an easier ride, put it that way. Um, yeah. But I think it just reflected the situation at the club at the time. The club was just, you know, we weren't at our own stadium. We're at with Dean. We were mid, a mid-table League One team. Previous seasons, they'd be going, get promoted, promoted, relegated, promoted again. Uh, we were playing a better brand of football and it was better to watch but we weren't as winning as many games. Uh, we weren't scoring as many goals. And I think that just reflected on coming back to why are we playing these younger players? Why are we not going to buy players? Um, and I think that just that came across from the crowd to the players. And yeah, I, it just it didn't affect me. But I could th- again, we went back to the mentality: could players of them younger players have better careers? Could they have longer careers at Brighton if they'd been in a different situation at the Amex, a better training ground? Who knows? I think that's another interesting one, isn't it, Jing? Like, again, we we we've spoken a lot about how how difficult it is, not just for individual players, but how it affects everyone around you when you make these sorts of decisions, uh, abuse, or it's so tough of being accused of, 
if your son or your husband or boyfriend or you know brand today's because it was talking maybe what 10 years ago maybe 12 years ago so you know social media wasn't such a big thing either so it's not even like you could go to that as an outlet creative outlet um you just sort of have to suck it up really and, and try to keep your head down because like you said players don't really speak out it's not really the dumb thing you're just there you're just an employee at the end of the day and you just got to perform when, you, when you're told to but i think that's that's something we touched upon before jing isn't it with, with some other players like how it affects those people around you and even if you're strong enough to you know your wife's not she hasn't trained in she hasn't gone through that that kind of uh, education. So she doesn't know how to deal with it or your, or your mum or your dad, you know, they haven't been trained and they haven't grown up in a system where you have to deal with that sort of stuff. I can, I, it must be really difficult for, for, for players to try to accept those types of scenarios because it, it, it must be mentally very draining for, for players in that scenario. Yeah, so how, once that, that, that situation happened, obviously, you know, uh, I'm sure it would have affected you quite a bit having that you were from there felt as if you should have been supported and then that in the end sort of pushed you away from from your club and what was your mentality like when you were forced to move eventually um was there something like you needed to prove yourself um that uh, sort of like a chip on your shoulder after that that situation occurred yeah i was definitely i was definitely thinking at some point i would want to go back to the football club so not a chip on my shoulder or um, holding the against the football club my thinking now was and my career was a little bit based on this right I'm going to go away I'm going to improve as a player I'm going to come better I'm going to get more experiences I'm going to go up through the levels uh, I'm going to achieve things and I'm going to come back to this football club and I'm going to show um, mm. why I was captain why I was a good player so it was just another thing to to light my fire it was another thing to inspire me um, I used to use them things to when we had, when I had a bad day or a bad game, I used to use them to motivate me. No, right, where's the bigger picture? Um, so, it, again, I like to think experiences like that helped me. At the time, it was difficult, but I never, I never felt it was too difficult for me because I was just solely focused on football. I was at Colchester now. I'd left the club. I wasn't at Brighton anymore. So, you know... But like Chris said, it's right. It's, you know, your family, my family were left behind. They were living in Sussex. They have to speak about people. They have to see the negativity. They have to read the articles. It's not nice for them, but I just tried to block it out as best as I could to concentrate on playing football. I, I want to glaze a little bit over to Colchester a bit. So you were there for a period and then you, you moved on to South, Southampton. You were re reunited with, with Dean Wilkins when he was there. Um, that's... I don't know, but from the outside looking in, that that would seemingly be your your best period in your career. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so what? How old are you now when 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 you made the move from Colchester to Southampton? Twenty five, twenty six. Twenty, yeah, twenty six. I think, yeah. Yeah, so you're coming into your prime now, aren't you? And I think quite quickly you you were given the armband, weren't you? So straight away you were given. You know, a lot of responsibility. What what was that like going into a new club and then quite quickly being made being made captain? Well, I, I keep getting given these challenges, Chris. It's like difficult <laughs> situations because again, was no one else available. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, no. Someone was captain. I took the captain on. Technically, took the armband off someone. Calvin Davis, and obviously, okay, yeah. at the highest level. Yeah, uh, yeah, been at the football club for for years was the main or the top dog in the dressing room, put it that way. Yeah. 
And I remember Alan Pardew calling me, me and him into the office. And I'm thinking, right, what's this about? Uh, maybe he just wants to run something over with the captain and, a more, and an experienced player or get our opinion on something. And he just dropped the bomb in front of me and Calvin together. And I had to react within Calvin, within the meeting room with the manager, um, him offering me to be captain and kind of taking it away from Kelvin. Like, he'd done it in a very, very diplomatic, very intelligent way where Kelvin was kept on as, and rightly so, he was club captain. So he yeah, was still yeah, the club yeah. captain. And I was going to wear the armband on the match day. So basically, I got the best role. I got to wear the armband, but with no responsibility off the pitch, which is the best <laughs> role of the captain. You don't have it's to amazing. do boring stuff. Oh, amazing. So... Again, that didn't go down too well. Um, obviously, the best bit's been taken away. But, um, yeah, it was a challenge again because I was into a new dressing room. I was still trying to prove myself as a player. I was fresh to the club. We were on minus 10 points at the time in League One, uh, the club of the size of Southampton. Um, so, But I just took it on board and was like, OK, look, I've just got to run with this. What am I going to do? Turn it down? No, not a chance. Um, so you just have to... And again, another experience that was... That probably, I don't know, grew my mentality, made me stronger. But I, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Again, fine on the pitch, really confident on the pitch, um, trusted my ability on the pitch. But the first few months there, six months maybe, difficult to settle because I didn't know whether the players would accept me. Accepting me, I didn't know whether, as a person, I meant them because they were, they were, they looked up to Kelvin, they respected yeah. Kelvin. He'd been at the club a long time, so. I was having to. I felt as I was having to fight battles off the pitch, um, and there, there were some big players in that dressing room at that time as well. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was challenging. And but again, I was. I used to just come back to football and go, look, what am I here to do? I'm here to play football. I'm employed to play football. I love my career in football. Um, so I just try to just try to concentrate on that. And the other bits just slowly got better. But you know what it's like, Chris. If you win games and you're doing well, everything's fine. And I was lucky at Southampton that we won a lot of matches and we were successful. So it slowly got a lot a lot easier. But credit to Kelvin. He, was very, he personally was very good with me. He was very accepting of the situation. He understood the situation. I just felt it, was, it took me a, a little bit more time to win the other players over. What yeah, do you think, so, sorry, go ahead, Dean. Dean go ahead. I'm, I'm very interested. You know, that's twice now that you've become captain, um, and one with Southampton where you were relatively new to the club. What was said to you as the reason why you were made captain, or why do you think personally that you were given the armband? Um, I would probably say just because of my mentality on the pitch. I'd like to say I wasn't I wasn't potentially a captain that would do huge speeches or motivate you off the pitch or within the dressing before. I would play my part, definitely. I would say things and try and um, only say things that were relevant and important. But I think I was a captain that led by example on the pitch, in training, would always set high standards, would always expect high standards of others within match situations or training situations um so i i think that's the reason why i was made captain because of my passion for the game not necessarily what i could bring off the pitch and that's probably why i was made team captain instead of club captain which you know worked out fine for me <laughs> no spot on jing jing dino was dean was our captain in the youth team 
Um, so no, hundred percent. He was a brilliant trainer. Like de- definitely not like a ranter and raver. Wasn't someone who'd be barking out. I mean, you had that capacity if you wanted to, but you, you weren't really that that type. It, it wasn't it wasn't that type of leadership. It was definitely more lead by example. Definitely more, you know, setting a standard. Doesn't matter whether it was a basic passing drill. You know, five a side game on a Friday. You know, just having a really good mentality. So no, he, he's he's hundred percent spot on with that. Um, but I mean, you you essentially were the the captain of an unbelievable Southampton side, and you. Correct me wrong. Two successive promotions. Is that right? Was that? Was, did you get promoted yeah. the first year? Or was it so not the first year? Your second and third years. Is that right? Second and third year. So the first year yeah. we were on minus ten, and we ended up yeah. seventh. So five points off the playoffs, I think. But we won. Right. We won the Paints Trophy that year at Wembley. So okay, um, that was good. But yeah, after the next season, it was back to back promotions from League One to the Premier League. Yeah. Yeah. And what was that like? Because that team was was obviously stacked. Like a lot of players who would go on to play. Well, be established household names in in the Premier League by the by the time their careers were done. Uh, did you have an inkling as you were going through that that this team was special? Like this team is is a team that's going to be, you know, one for the ages with with the Southampton faithful. Yeah, I, it's easy to say now because we achieved it, but I, I would say yeah. there was a sense of it, and I would the sense was Chris players can have ability technically. We had technically brilliant players. We had players with ridiculous ability. Um, but the players within the dressing room were good, good, good people as well and hungry individuals, hungry individuals to succeed. So their sole focus during that two-year period was to get to the Premier League. And there was no outside influences. There was no distractions. It was such a good place to be at, so professional I'm not saying we all loved each other and we were best of friends, but when we were in the training ground, when we played games, we were together and it was the sole focus of everyone's life during that period. And that's why we were successful. Um, yes, we had good players, obviously, and we had a good coach um, in Dino and a good manager in Nigel. So that really helped. And we played, a, you touched on it before, we played a system that really allowed our players to express themselves and and helped. Um, but we used to work we were fit and I mean really but football fit we weren't just like running in straight lines we were football fit everything was done with the ball so we used to run over teams Um, but yeah I could there was a real sense but only from when we started to build a bit of momentum once we built that momentum and we were scoring goals we were creating chances the crowds it's a huge thing in football Especially when you're playing in a football stadium, a big stadium, the crowds started to come back. The stadium started to fill up. The games were noisier. We were scoring more goals. It was more entertaining. You get the vibe. The environment was built. It just flowed. And once you start that, you just want to keep it going. Yeah. I mean, King's probably wondering here, like, some of the some of the, the calibre of players that you that you had in your team. I mean, you're talking like Adam Lallana would have been in that team. Um Oxley Chamberlain in that group when he got promoted out of League One or not? Was he? Did he come after Oxley Chamberlain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. So you, you, no, you're talking about like so, yeah, like the, top England international caliber players like yeah. Ricky Lambert, for example. So all these guys went on to play for England. Like, did you did you feel they had that capacity in them when you were? Because obviously they were probably quite young themselves coming up through through the ranks of Southampton. And um, did you did you feel like those those guys were going to be playing at you know champ, Champions League winning medal? Uh, Winning Champions League medals and that sort of thing. 
Uh, oh, Chris, hard to say because I could never, I could never associate with it because obviously I've not played in the Champions League. I've not actually played in the yeah. Premier League, so I couldn't, com- I couldn't compare them. All I could yeah. say was every challenge that was put in front of them, they excelled at in terms of the next level up. League One, winning the League One, they become the best players in that league. Moved up to yeah. the Championship, they became the best players in that league. So. It's almost like when you say you speak of a goal scorer, they say, well, can they score at that level? It's not whether yeah. they can score or whether they're good enough at scoring. It's whether they'll get the opportunities. The, you know, the, the goal doesn't move. The goalkeepers don't suddenly become a million times better. You don't play with a different ball or a different surface. So all they needed was the platform and the opportunity. And every time yeah. they got that, whether it was Championship, Premier League, playing for England, in the Champions League, playing in Europe, they excelled. And... They, they just, they were that type of personality that once they were given the opportunity, they were going to take it with both hands. Yeah. So I'm guessing, how old were they when they burst on the scene? I mean, they must have been in their late teens, early 20s at that time. Yeah. So Adam and yeah. Lana would have been early 20s. We had Morgan yeah. Snydlin. It would have been more. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Uh, Oxide Chamberlain was 17, 18. You had War Prowse, James War Prowse coming yeah. through. Uh, Luke Shaw was there. Obviously, he's at Man United now. Yeah. Um, and then you had the experience I mean Ricky would have been in his prime Ricky's the same age as me maybe a year yeah. older so he'd been 26, yeah. 27 um, and Dan Arden I mean Dan, Dan Arden gets forgotten a little bit Dan Arden was a brilliant left back so, so fit so strong I mean can you remember many players taking Dan Arden on I can't remember a one on one situation if a winger was attacking him you just couldn't get past him but yeah. Okay, so just yeah. okay, so just so just for the listeners and the viewers, Dan Harden is my year uh, at, at Brighton. So uh, good, good friends, good friend of mine, good friend of yours as well. Um, and yeah, he's just one of these players that he didn't look quick. He didn't no. look quick. He didn't like. He's all we used to call him Mister Tickle. Like he was all arms and legs, right? But <laughs> yeah. honest, to, honest, honest, honest to God. Honest to God, like you just couldn't, you couldn't be him. You couldn't, couldn't go around him. He, he just no. had this ability, didn't he, to sort of get his arms, he'd get his long limbs in the way, and yeah, yeah like un, uh, unbelievable, and, and like had a ridiculous career. Like most of his, most of his career in the championship, done really well. So no, I, I totally agree. Like I look at that group. I remember. I think did you play in the game where you played Man United in the cup? Did you play that? I think you played that day. I think you did play uh... that day. I you I there? Suspended, actually. I think I was suspended. We we lose oh, two one or three one. Yeah, yeah, two, yeah, yeah. I think was it Chapo? The Chapo score. Some, yeah, I, Chapo I forget the game. Yeah, Chapo right. The, right. Yeah. So I just think I remember. I don't know if you're in the Premier League at that time, um, or if you were still in the Championship and sort of making inroads towards progressing to the, to the Premier League. But I remember looking at that team, thinking, "Wow, they've got something special there." There's a lot of players that you could tell were going to be they were going to get cherry picked. I mean, it wasn't Southampton yeah. that we know now, where Liverpool just take everyone, but. It was there was a lot of talent in that. There was a lot of talent in that team. You could tell that something was brewing, and obviously having a little connection with some, obviously the coaching staff, and then some of the players. Like we, I, I looked out to that and watched you guys really intently, and it was amazing to see you guys develop and obviously getting back to back promotions. I mean, you found yourself reaching the pinnacle, which, as I alluded to at the beginning, I always felt that you would you had that capacity to to get to that level, but it didn't quite work out for you, did it? It didn't quite pan out for you for reasons that I don't know so I was hoping you would shed light on, on, on what happened between you going in from the, going up from the championship into the Premier League uh, what what happened at the club there 
Well, yeah, I mean, it would have been it would have been the dream, the dream end, or the dream to, to the, the or the vision that I was sold um, to come from League One to the Premier League. Um, to do it as captain would have been brilliant. We did that, we achieved that. Um, but yeah, I never got actually got the chance with Southampton to play in the Premier League with them, um, and that was just that's just another side of, of football and the industry side of football where it's ruthless, where the club had worked so hard to get to that level that they. They went and spent a lot of money on players um, and you, you, you get moved down the pecking order. Um, and it was pretty it was pretty clear, to be honest, Chris. Um, early on in pre-season, I was having a good pre-season. I felt good as a player. I, I, became, I came back really fit, ready for the challenge to uh, prove myself in the Premier League. Knew it was going to be more of a challenge um, to get into the team or have a consistent place in the team. But yeah, I mean, my squad number got changed. Uh, or no, it got suggested it was going to be changed. So I was getting, I didn't understand the reason behind that because I was 14. I wasn't like a, a prominent number where a striker coming in wanted to be number nine or something. Right. So, um, and then I wasn't part of, uh, we played Man City away on the first game of the season. We travelled up as a squad. Um, I wasn't named on the bench. Um, the manager put four defenders on the bench for some reason, which is again a strange Strange reason. War Prowse came in and played, made his debut at seventeen, um, and I was and the captaincy was taken away. So I had a meeting with the manager. He told me I wasn't involved. He took the captaincy away from me on the on, all in one meeting in the space of half an hour. So it was a little bit difficult to to accept. Um, I was very disappointed and frustrated, um, but the club the club were good with me, Chris, because they were honest. And I think that's come out of the game. I might not have liked the decision. I might not have agreed with the decision, but they were honest with me, and they told yeah. me, and the manager told me, and and they and they helped me in the situation afterwards to get the move back to Brighton. So, would I have liked the opportunity? Yes, of course, because my ultimate goal in my my professional career was to play in the Premier League, from where we come from at Brighton, um, and I felt so close to it to it then be taken away. Um, it was very difficult. But getting the opportunity, like we spoke to um, earlier, to go back to Brighton, to to right them wrongs, to prove myself, um, actually motivated me um, as well as not playing in the Premier League. So I worked this scenario to my advantage in the end, which helped, which helped my career push on again. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you. It sounds like you handled that with dignity. Maybe you didn't behind closed doors, or maybe just being nice on on the podcast. Maybe, maybe you. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you I'm guessing Nigel Atkins is the manager at this point still yeah, right he, yeah. he was still he was still yeah. the manager right I mean look yeah that must have been incredibly difficult to, to accept um, but no I, I appreciate you giving us the you know, your version of events because I can imagine that a lot of people probably handled that in a, in a far more negative way but like you said if, if people are willing to sit you down and do it in a, in a professional manner then I think like you said you can't you don't have to like it, but you do have to accept it because that is the, yeah. the the nature of the game. But yeah, it, it, I know the story a little bit, so it now paves the way for you to go back home, so to speak. Um, mm. I'm going to glaze over the the celebration, uh, which, is, <laughs> which is which is infamous. Jing, Jing, and any listeners, if they want to uh, relive something, Jing, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll tell my version. If you want to elaborate or, or tell the real version, you can. But long story short, Dean comes back to Brighton, playing for Southampton, scores. Um, I, I say score, you lightly touched the ball, right? For yeah. A, is it headed finish, yeah. glance, 
glance yeah. one in and celebrate. Do you know Marco Tardelli in the 82 World Cup when he goes absolutely <laughs> crazy? He does, he, in front of the Brighton fans, he does, goes under them. A bit of ear, ear cupping involved. But, um, which, yeah, didn't really endear him to the Brighton fans. But is that, is that a fair? I, I, didn't, I didn't want you to, because I know you spoke about it quite a bit, but it's a fair assessment. Okay. So, yeah. so, so, so we'll, we'll leave that one there because you, you do end up coming back. Um, and, Gus, Gus points the manager at the time. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. How, how's yeah. that move? Or how's that move? Will come about? That came about through um, Charlie Oakway rang Dan Hardin. So Dan Hardin was still at Southampton. Or Dan Hardin might have actually just left to go to Nottingham Forest. So Dan rang yeah. me and said, um, "Charlie wants your number because Bright- Brighton were interested in um, bringing you back to Brighton under Gus. Um, would you be interested?" So I said, yes, Charlie knew my agent anyway. So I said, look, just speak to my agent, see if it's possible that it could happen. Um, and that's where it started from. Um, that started quite early on in pre-season, but it took a little while to get over the line because the clubs didn't, between Brighton and Southampton, didn't have the best relationship. Uh, the managers didn't get on, don't know why. Um, the clubs, there was some friction between the chairmen of both clubs. So... It wasn't the easiest deal to put together, um, but because of, I believe, this is why I think Southampton, where Southampton helped me out, because of what the service I've given to the club in terms of going from League One to the Premier League, um, they kind of looked past that and said, look, I made it clear then, if I wasn't going to be part of plans at Southampton, I'd like to go back to Brighton. Um, And I met Gus, really impressed with him straight away. I knew some of the players at Brighton, the new stadium was there, Chris, which we were all sold as youngsters at 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Um, and I was going to get the opportunity to play play there um, under a brilliant manager, under, um, you know, we played against them the previous year, the way they played football, the expansive game they played. And it was a different football club now. They had finances, yeah. they had financial backing, they had ambition again. Um, and it's a brilliant place to live. So... It ticked a lot of a lot of boxes. Boxes. I didn't get my chance to play in the Premier League, but if I was going to go leave, it's the only place I really wanted to go. So um, that's how the move came about. And once both clubs had got past it, it moved pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, just just to give everyone a, a, a picture of what it was like for us growing up in the academy, so centre of excellence. Yeah. Uh, where the training ground was at the time, which is in Falmer, is kind of in between where I'm from, Lewis and Brighton, the city. Um, and there's a university campus either side of the, of the main highway that runs between where, where I'm from, my town, and, and Brighton. And ever since, I'm going to say we were probably 13 or 14, weren't we, Dean? And they were saying, like, at Falmer, there's going to be this, this state-of-the-art stadium. Yeah. You, know, you guys are all going to get to play there one day. And it was like this, this beam of light that was, was you know, put upon us as a real target for us all to aspire to. <laughs> but, but basically, the long story short, Jing, uh, is there was huge issues with like planning permission. Um, funny enough, the kid... Um, the guy who kicked up all the fuss about it, he, he actually went to my school and played for my brother's oh, Sunday league team. No, yeah, he's actually the guy right. who owns some property on the other side of the, of the, of the, by the pond where we used to run. Um, and yeah, it took forever to get over the line. And obviously, in your first tenure at the club, we didn't play, you didn't play at the Amex, but lo and behold, on, on your return, it, it all comes to fruition. So, American Express Stadium, you know, Premier League caliber stadium, 
Um, unbelievable setup, everything had completely changed. Um, I mean, what was that like? Because the team, obviously, it was, it was, I mean, they played some unbelievable football. They had, they had attracted some real promising up and coming youngsters. Did you get a sense for the, at the time that that was a team that was, that was headed towards the Premier League? Was that, was that ambition made clear when, when you met there, even though it was only on loan? But did you get that sort of vibe when you went back to the club? Yeah, hundred percent. It was, it was, it was. That was the sole ambition of the um, the football club. Why they'd obviously built the stadium was to try and get back to the top level. There was the the um, plans of a new training ground. We were still training at Falmer then, um, but there was a, the plans of a new training ground. They were starting to spend money. They bought uh, Craig Pickell Smith for a large amount of money, um, which Brighton hadn't done for years. Um, they Gus had used his contacts. Um, in Spain and brought some really talented younger Spanish players in. Um, uh, and and they were just, it was all geared to get to the Premier League. And um, we played a brand of football, Chris, that was just fantastic. And the way we worked on it in training and the training methods that Gus had, very simple. Um, they weren't like complicated or anything that another coach wouldn't be able to do, but they were just done at such a high tempo um, and such an intensity when you played the game, it just flowed. Um, so I knew straight away that we had a chance because I'd just been promoted the year before with Southampton. Yeah. So I knew what the championship was about. The only reservation I had was whether we were going to score enough goals because that is every team in football, you're based on that. You need yeah. to be able to score enough goals because you're going you're gonna to concede goals. It's as simple as that. Um, and that was why we probably didn't go up automatically and why we got to the playoffs. We just didn't quite score enough goals. I think we drew 16 games that year, maybe. And we missed out on automatic promotion by three points. So that was the only thing because we had so much possession of the football. We dominated yeah. teams. We wore teams down. Um, and we... And we just ran out of time, really. We was on such a good run towards the end of the season because he brought Matty Upson in, in, in January. He brought Leo Ajour in in January, where then I played again with Leicester. Um, so it, it, was, it, it makes you smile because it was just a brilliant year. A brilliant yeah. year. I, I, I loved it. I, I must admit, it was, we didn't technically achieve anything that year. We lost in the playoff final, but I, I look back with such fond memories. I loved it. So you, you mentioned there you, you you played with Leo Azure and then you you teamed up with him at, at Leicester. Um, so obviously you've then gone back to Southampton and then you've managed to negotiate the move to to Leicester the following season. Is that is that is that correct? Yeah. So this yeah, will be under right, Nigel. Yeah. This will be under Nigel Pearson, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nigel. Pearson, yeah. So, yeah. Right. So he signed you, and you're you're obviously ch- Championship club, but. Obviously, unbeknownst to you at the time, but there's probably a handful of players from that squad that will go on to win the Premier League in yeah. two, yeah, a couple of couple of seasons' time. Um, I mean, how, how how would you describe your your, your time at Leicester? How, how how was it for you being in in that environment with Nigel Pearson? First of all, I love my time there. Like as a, as, a, as a family and as in my individual time, it was brilliant. The players were yeah. brilliant um, and love my football as well. Probably didn't play as much as I would like to have done. Um, yeah. But that, that year, we, we got put up, the year I signed, um, we got promoted to the Premier League. And Nigel Nigel was a great, great manager. Best manager I worked under uh, as a manager. Really? Not, necessar- not necessarily coach. 
Uh, his man management skills. Uh, really? Honest, uh, direct. Uh, his message was clear. Um, had full respect of every player. Might not have liked him, but respected him. Um, and had a presence. I think you need... That's my opinion. I'm not, I've never been a coach or a manager, so I don't know. But you need a presence. You need, and that doesn't mean people need to fear you or are scared of you. You just need a presence that when the manager's talking or walks into a room, that the atmosphere just changes a little bit. And that might just be, it turns into a happy atmosphere. Not a, everyone goes quiet, but there's something. <laughs> You'll know what I'm talking about. There's just something. Yeah, yeah. He had, he, he had that. Um, but he was he was good with me when I first signed. That, And I knew the situation. He kind of signed me from my experience, not necessarily to play week in and week out. He needed who else, to who else did he have? Yeah, so who else would he have had in centre midfield at that time? So we had Danny Dreamwater, uh, yeah. Matty James, Andy King. So it was us yeah. four of us fine for, for two positions. And right. I did play. I, I mean, I made I think I made 38 appearances that season. Yeah. A majority were off the bench, but I was coming on for a, you know, 20, 30 minutes most games. Um, so I played my part, but it was a different part I played. And I I quite enjoyed the role, really. It was quite a... Did you? It was a bit... Of, yeah, a little bit. It was, it was different, but it was a... It was a it was different responsibility because we won the championship by Cantor that year. We were promoted with, I, I, I'm guessing, like eight, nine, ten games to go. Um, so we won a lot of games that year, scored a lot of goals. So my job basically was, it would be about 20, 25 minutes ago, I'd be bought on just to see the game out, make sure we'd, or everyone done their jobs, stayed disciplined, kept, the, kept possession of the ball um, and just done the boring side of the game make sure we won. And that was my role within the football club. And it was hard to accept to start with, but in the end I enjoyed it because I had I had a role. I had a I had a purpose there, if that makes sense. Um but then the second year I got my opportunity in the Premier League, which is um something that I'm very grateful for and played played a decent amount of times uh, in the Premier League. Uh the year we stayed up. But suffered with a lot of injuries as well, Chris. So yeah, an up and down, up and down year that year. But no, love my time at Leicester. Really, really good. I, I, I want to know a little bit more about that that year that you spent in the Premier League because obviously you get to the pinnacle, you get to where you've you know you worked so hard your whole life to get to this point. I, I, like I spoke to, like we said, we, we had Neil Etheridge is probably the most high profile goalkeeper that we've got played last year in the in the Premier League when he was with Cardiff, and he he would talk about like. There are times in the games where, you know, you think, yeah, this could be any level. It's not necessarily, it could be, could be the Premier League, could be League One, could League Two, whatever. And he said, then all of a sudden, bang, something happens and you, you don't know what happens. Bang, 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 balls in the back of the net. He said, like, he would, he would watch Man City sometimes and he'd be like, the movement and the pace and the incision that they played with was just, like, on a level that he'd never seen before. Like, did you get to the Premier League and, fit and feel like, wow, this is, this is, I can see why people see this as the, in the, 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 the best league in the world. Or did you get there and think, actually, no, like, this is a standard that I'm capable of playing at? Honestly, I think he Honestly, was, yeah. I, felt, I felt the most comfortable I'd ever felt in my career. I, I know exactly what he's saying in terms of the quality and the pace and uh, the calibre of the player. 100% agree with that. There is a huge difference, a huge difference within them split moments. Right. Not for long periods, but within them split moments when it really matters around the box where a quick one-two and a cross and a goal in a flash of an eye, the game's gone from you. 
But in terms of my position as, as playing as a whole midfield player, keeping possession, understanding the game, reading the game, I felt I felt I was made for it. The yeah. only thing that, that yeah, I felt the most comfortable. I played the best football of my career in that period where I probably played 10, 11 games consistently in a row and started for Leicester. The only thing that went for me, Chris, my body came up and gave up on me because, yeah. because not gave up on me, but because I had to push myself to the limits to get myself as good as I could to be the best I possibly could. I pushed myself so hard because I didn't have the natural attributes or natural physical ability of other people. I had to work hard every day in training, twice sometimes days in training to keep at that level. Once I got to that level, I felt brilliant. My diet was spot on. Uh, my training methods, my, my confidence, my mentality was brilliant. But I just couldn't keep it going because my body broke down. And I, that, for example, I was saying about injuries, I, I tore my car five times that season because it just, it just wouldn't hold up on me. Yeah. What was it about the game specifically then that you found, like, I don't want to say easier because that doesn't, that doesn't sound right, but what, what, what enables you to perhaps, like, was, it, was it a case of people gave you more time on the ball because maybe they, there was an assumed level of ability with everyone in the Premier League, so you might not necessarily be as engaged as you would be at a championship level where it might be a little bit more, the cut and thrust of the championship might be a little higher. Well, what was it about the Premier League level that you felt was enabled you to play at a higher level? Um... You did get a little bit more time on the ball um, in certain areas of the football pitch. Um, also, the ball was on the floor more. Um, okay. wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite as direct as maybe the championship on League One is. Um, people, players respected each other a little bit more in terms of, right, I know you're a good player, so I can't just dive in all over the place and um, rush to this area. It was more structured. Um, right. So, I think that just suited my game. I was very, I was always very, I was always comfortable in possession, Chris. I was pretty aware in possession, um, never the quickest, um, but my positional sense was pretty good. So, I always felt as though I could read a, a, a top level player better. I know this might sound weird, but I, I, I kind of read what they were going to do because they were good players. Now, that might not make sense, but I knew a player, if they were going to right, try and play it around the corner, one touch. I knew whether they are going to run it and let it run across their body. Whereas if you're playing in the Championship or League One, don't get me wrong, brilliant players. And I was one of them players at one point and a long time in my career. You didn't always know exactly what you were going to do with the ball until you got <laughs> it. Whereas, whereas top-level players, they've got pitches in their head. So... I could see from a player, I would have seen him look where he's going to pass it before he's even seen the ball, received the ball. So when he does a no-look pass, I know he's not passing it there because I've seen him look already. Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah. I, fe I felt the game suited me more. I just, yeah, I probably got to the Premier League at the wrong age for my body, if that makes sense. Because I was playing in the Premier League at 32. I wish I'd been there at 28, maybe, 20, 27, 28. But that, look, I was lucky. I played with some brilliant players and had a great career, so I'm not moaning, believe me. <laughs> yeah. Jing, <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a, that's a really interesting insight, isn't it? To like how, because obviously we see it from one perspective, multiple perspectives with the cameras, but you don't, the intricacy or the nuances you don't necessarily pick up until you actually play either alongside someone that's amazing or you play against someone that's really good. I don't know what your take on that, Jing, because I mean, 
we, we talked about similar things with, with, with in other episodes, but never with that level of detail. I thought that was really interesting. No, it is. Um, it, it makes a ton of sense. And I think it, it, it carries over to a, a lot of different fields as well. You know, that, that a certain level of understanding of the game means certain things have become a little bit more predictable, whereas individuals who have, um, who don't know what they're going to do with the ball or don't know what they're going to do in that specific situation until it arrives to them, how could you predict what they're going to do if they don't know what they're going to do, right? So um, it, it makes a ton of sense at that point. But w- when you made it to that stage, what, what, what interested me was it's been such a long journey, you know? It, it, it has taken you ups and downs, twists and turns, and there you were, finally. Um, and you talked a lot about, you know, sort of being uncomfortable in being in, in, in new situations. But you said when you arrived in the Premier League, you felt like it was home. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because it'd been where I've been trying to get to for my whole career. Um, and it was, I was, it's, it's, it's anything in life. I always felt as if I got the opportunity, I could excel in the Premier League or I could, I could do well in the Premier League because my game was suited to it. A bit like Chris mentioned earlier, that getting an opportunity at Brighton when we were younger was difficult because it didn't suit the way we played or the way we were developed. I always thought that in the youth team at Brighton, when my foundations as a player were were set, we were being moulded into players that could... Dino was looking at us to make us into players that could get to the top level, not necessarily in the first team at Brighton. So once I got there, I knew I'd be okay. It was just whether... The question mark was whether I could get there. That was always the issue. So I felt comfortable and... I was as focused as I'd ever been. I, I dedicated my life to get there. So once I got the opportunity and I'd lost it once at Southampton, there was no way I was ever going to change that. And I introduced different things into my game. I started to speak to a, um, uh, a sports scientist, uh, just a, a sports psychologist, just to maybe look into it and look into my mind a little bit more. Maybe look into it. Is there anything I can change in my lifestyle or my mentality or my thinking? to make me a better player. So um, once I was there, I loved every minute of it and just wish it could have continued a bit longer. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, I, I, I remember reading a little bit about like some of the some of the guys that you ended up having to compete with at that, that club. I mean, obviously, again, we talk about household names. I mean, World Cup winners, you know, you, 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 you then find yourself you know, sharing the change room with N'Golo Kanta and people like that, you know, it go on, that will go on to win. I think we had Morris was there with you, right? Uh, Jamie Vardy, obviously. Yeah. And, and these guys yeah. will obviously go on to, to, to win the Premier League. Um, you, technically, you were at the club, though, correct, when they, won the, when they won the Premier League, right? Is that, is, that, is, that, is that how you tell, is that how you describe it? Do you describe it as, oh, is that Leicester when they won the Premier League? <laughs> Because technically you were there, right? Is that? I, 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 I wouldn't be lying, would I? Technically, I like. No, you, you're not lying. <laughs> yeah. is, that is the truth. But obviously, yeah. I mean, you, you go out on loan, and they win, 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 win the title under Ranieri. But um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to throw that out there just in case anyone wants to know. Dean was at Leicester when they won the title. Technically, on 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 the roster. Did you get a winners' medal? No. No, no, definitely. You had to. You had to make. I think you had to make 15 appearances to get a, to get yeah. a medal. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so you missed no, out yeah. on that I, one. Yeah. I missed out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but look, thing, mate, I, I, I want to be really respectful of your time. So there's one other aspect that I really wanted to cover with you. 
um, before you go because it's, it's just flown by. Honestly, it's, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. So I, I wanted to just find out one last thing from you because uh, just a little bit about what you're doing now. Really, um, I know you've got your um, you go into that fitness space, which you you already alluded to is, is something that you you've been passionate about. I mean, since you were a kid, you always I'm unbe- unbelievably fit. I, I personally always thought you'd end up going to coaching. I thought that would be a natural progression for you. I, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, what what's what's on the horizon for you? Like, I, I heard you say before you you wouldn't be a coach. So I was just wondering what what is the what is the next step for you? It's a difficult one, Chris, because if you're asking me if it was personally just down to me, I think I'd like to coach. I think I'd like to manage. Yeah. But I've made the commitment to my family. I've got a family of three children. Um, we're, we're a busy family in terms of we do a lot. Um, the kids are happy. Uh, they're thriving in life. So I feel again where not I feel as I was already had my career in football, but I'd be being selfish to maybe be a, a dad that's not there for them as much as I want to be, if that makes sense. Now, that's not yeah. judging anyone else or whatever. I just kind of already committed to that. Um, but I, I loved, I had a period when I came out of the game, when I finished playing, and I went back to Leicester um, before I was loan manager. And I had a period yeah. where the 23s manager um, asked me to come in and mentor the players. So he came in and asked me to speak to the players, come in and train with the players. Um, I eventually ended up playing again for the 23s because you could play an overage player. Um, yeah. But I loved it. I think it, it was one of the most enjoyable six months of my life that I could go in, I could speak to people, I could I could pass on my knowledge, my experiences, the goods, the bads, the ups, the downs, what I would do, what I wouldn't do if I had my time again. Um, I could still physically train with the players so I could pass on my experience within game situations or training situations, which you'll know as a coach, I, I believe that demonstra- actually being able to demonstrate things is so much clearer than just being able to say, right, you need to do this. If you can demonstrate it, um, and actually show someone how to do it, I think it fast tracks their development. Um, so that's something I'm looking to go into. I'm looking, I've set up a fitness-based sort of business, but I want to do the one-on-one coaching. So it is part okay. of coaching, but it's, yeah. it's one-on-one, develop, one-on-one development with players to make yeah. them technically better, to make them fitter, because fitness at, uh, at top-level football now is so important. Um, but during that coaching pass on some knowledge, pass on some experience, try and help them through their career, try and help younger players. And I've got a big thing as well, Chris, because my career didn't end too well um, in a, uh, from a personal point of view and a, a, a mental point of view. Um, I'd like to help older players as well because I think they get forgotten. They get kind of like, you've had your career, you're not an asset anymore, you're not going to make us any money. Um, the club and the associations just kind of push them aside. Um, so I think there's a lot of help needed for the older players. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've actually got down here is, uh, you, again, you sort of touched upon it in that Brighton interview. It was, it was right at the end of the interview, but you didn't really get to elaborate on, like, it sounds as though the transition for you was quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a challenge, Chris, because I dedicated my whole life to football. Um, I'd lived in that bubble because it is a bubble. Um, it's not really reality. Um, and I'd had the happy experience of six, seven, eight years of real success in my career through Brighton, Southampton, Colchester, Leicester, where everything had gone well. I'd got the pats on the back, I'd got the praise. Times were happy. I went to Sheffield United and it didn't end well for me. I didn't perform um, and it affected me. I came out of the game 
should have stayed in the game, could have physically could have kept playing, but I was mentally drained. I needed a break from it and I thought as though I'd had a good enough career and I had a strong enough name that if I came away from it, I could get back in. Um, that was wrong. In hindsight, I wish I hadn't done that and I couldn't get mm. back in. So it affected me and I was in... Look, you can only base your life on yourself. There's a lot of people in, in the world that have more issues than me, worse issues than me, but I can only base myself on my own life. Um, and I was in a dark place for a bit. I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't, I didn't have direction. Um, I was making silly decisions that impacted my life um, because I had nothing to focus on. I had, no, I had no life goal anymore. My life goal was to play football and get to the Premier League. And any walk of life, I personally think if you lose that, I mean, what are you doing? Well, what are you heading for? You're just walking around in circles. And I, I, lost, I lost my identity for a, a good 18 months to two years. Really? So how, yeah, how, did you, how, how did how did you how did you go about starting to sort of turn that tide? Like what what was the what was the catalyst between obviously that point where you left um, Sheffield United and again you spoke on the podcast a little bit. You know you, you tried to you left the game thinking you can come back. Obviously couldn't. Like what was the catalyst to then bring you back to this place now where you seem a lot better, or is it still something that you kind of struggle with? even at this point? No, I'm getting, I must admit, I'm, I'm a lot better now. Um, I'm a lot better in terms of uh, my, my, my thinking patterns are a lot clearer. Um, I found focus again um, in terms of, I just, I, st I just started listening to people um, and associating myself with people that didn't have the same values as me in life. And once you do that, if you surround, you surround yourself with the wrong people or people that um, don't have the same ambition as you, you become them people. Um, and I just got involved in things in terms of um, different businesses, different ventures that just weren't me, Chris. I didn't understand. Really? I, didn't, I wasn't passionate about them. I ran away from football and fitness because it ended so badly for me. So... The reason why I've come back to it is that I faced it now. I faced my, 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 I suppose my fear, my fear of judgment by other people. Um, I've stopped comparing myself to people and just gone. Look, I'm, I'm me. I, I'm, I, I've, I've gone back to doing the basics of. I love sport. I love football. I love helping people. I love passing on experience. And I think I can make a. I can help people, and I can make a change in other people's life, like we were given. There's people in my yeah. life and I expect the people in your life that have given you opportunities and advice and helped you along the way. And I want to be one of them people now. So that's how I got back to And obviously my family, my kids are, are brilliant. So I'm, I'm grateful yeah. for that. That's unbelievable, Dean. Like, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I know that that can't be hard to, as footballers, you don't necessarily open up to, about things like that, do you? And I think, I think it's, it's becoming a little less of a taboo subject. People sort of talk about it in a little bit more open terms these days compared to how it was probably 10, 15 years ago. But I think that's, oh, it's a massive one. People losing their identity when they come out of the game. I think I mean, it's what drives people to alcohol addiction, um, you know, gambling problems and people get forgotten. And it's, it's a shame when you give so much of your life, you dedicate yourself 
to the profession and then to not get looked after is, is really disappointing. So no, I, I think you'd be one who'd be great for that. The other thing, I'll, if anyone gets a chance to, first of all, follow Dean on his, on his, his Instagram, uh, his, his personal one and his fitness one. But he, he put out this amazing, uh, it was about a minute and a half you put out, uh, video. I think he, basically he'd just gone for a run. And, um, and I don't know what, you, what gave you this, this epiphany or whatever, but you, uh, you, you basically, I'll, I'll paraphrase, but he basically said running is like life. You know, you, it's hard. You can stop running if you don't feel like running anymore. No one's going to say anything, but you'll know. Like you'll know within yourself if you've done the run or if you've not done it. And then if you push through those difficult aspects of the run, you know, the uphills, the wind in your face or whatever it is, when you finish it and you complete it, you're like, oh, I feel brilliant. I feel really good about myself. And I feel like I've, I've completed something. And I don't know if you've got loads of messages off the back of it, but my brother, he sent it to me as soon as you put it up. And my brother's like, have you seen this? Like, and it, it was only like a minute and a half. It wasn't, it, wasn't, and it wasn't like this interview, which is running on close to two hours, but it was, it was, it was perfect. It was succinct. And it, made me, it actually was the catalyst to make me want to reach out to you because I think you've got so much to give. Like, yeah, like you said, your experiences are so vast and varied and, and different. And I see the stuff that you're doing now. And I, I, like, that's really why I thought I'd love to see you coach, like it, as in a team. I, I think you, from that perspective, you've got a lot to give. But I can also see you working, you know, doing your one-to-one stuff. You know, I've seen you do that already. I know it's kind of your formative stage of doing that, but it looks like you really enjoy doing it. I love tuning in and trying to do it. I, I don't complete it, Jing. I'm not going to lie. It's bloody hard work. <laughs> but... Uh, but, but no, it's 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 brilliant. Like I've I've really I've I've really enjoyed that aspect of your of your transition. So I hope if that's what gives you joy and that's what gives you satisfaction, then then why try to put yourself in a position like coaching, which is a really all encompassing type of role. I mean, like you said, Dean was great as a Dean Wilkins was great as a father figure to all of us, but it must have been difficult for his kids or difficult for his wife because he gave so much to us. Like how are you how are you going to be with 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 your own kids? I, I struggled that with myself. Um, so. No, I just wanted to ask that question because I was always really intrigued. I always saw you as being a manager and I just wanted to know what your take on it was. So, I mean, you've, you've sort of half put that to bed, but there's definitely some coaching elements that, that are still in there somewhere. Um, and then lastly, what, are your kids playing? That's the other thing I was going to ask you. Like, are, you, are your kids playing football? What, are they, are they going to follow in daddy's footsteps or what, what's the deal there? <laughs> Well, I've got a daughter who's 11, so she's very academic. She's, uh, she loves her reading and writing. She, she like, writes stories and things like that, so not her. My, my middle boy is, uh, yeah, he's a talent, talented. He's, he's talented at all sports, which I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing because he's not nailed down that. I think you, you can be a jack of all trades and, and good at, and brilliant at nothing. So. But you were, quite, you were quite good at other sports, no? I remember you yeah. being quite good at cricket. You were quite good at cricket. yeah. Cricket and right. tennis, I enjoyed. Yeah, cricket and tennis. So my, my middle boy was at Brighton, so he was he was training at Lancing at uh, under. Yeah. He started under sixes, um, and he went. He was there to the under eights. Um, he's come away from that now, where he wasn't quite ready for it. Um, but I think he's got a. I think he's got a life in foot in in sport, um, which is great to see because I think sport is the best way to live your life personally um so if you can do that that'd be great and my youngest boy uh, who's free he's just uh he's brilliant he's funny and he beats crazy so i don't know of him yet he could um... (laughs) i'm gonna have to keep an eye on him i think uh, is it okay good yeah he's got he's uh, he's an he's an interesting project my youngest but he's no he's great great fun yeah he's great is that 
is that his Hastings side? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, is that his, yeah, yeah. It, might, it might be it might be his Hastings side. <laughs> <laughs> oh mate, I, I tell you what, I want I want to be respectful of your time because it's it's gone on for two hours. And to, and to be honest with you, mate, it's absolutely flown by. I've I've really enjoyed this. A lot of the people who listen to our podcast are young and kids who are aspiring to be successful in football or academia or anything. Um, a lot of coaches will listen to this. Um, a lot of players will listen to this as well. People who aspire to be professional footballers. And I think some of the messages that things put out there are just, whether it's football or whether it's business or whether it's your personal life or whatever, I think they're just great morals and codes to live by. Um, a lot of stuff that instilled with us from the, from the academy from a young age. Um, and, and obviously he's, he's carried that through throughout his career and then has achieved unbelievable success like just just for me personally Dean like I said we have before the conversation started we haven't spoken in 18 years but from afar you know me probably other guys as well live vicariously through the likes of you and Dan and people who came through the academy together and just amazing like so so proud that people from our neck of the woods people for come through the same system as us has gone on to establish have established careers in in football it's 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 amazing so like first of all thanks for coming on congratulations on an unbelievable career it's it's it was a, it was a privilege to play with you from nine till uh, 11 till 19 um and to, to, to watch you like have an, an incredible career it's it's yeah it from afar it's it was it was it was really really enjoyable and i'm glad that we finally have had this opportunity to, to catch up and 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 uh, and talk because it's been a long time coming but I'm hoping maybe our paths will cross again in the coaching circuit in some way shape or form um, yeah definitely because I, I, would, I would love to see I, I would love to see that I would love to see that happen but I don't know what, what your thoughts on, on it Jing any, any takeaways from you before we, uh, before we let Dean get on with his day I think it's tremendous just being able to listen to you guys speak and go through your experiences and the ups and downs and the ruthlessness the reality of, of pro football and the curveballs along the way you know um it's not all just uh, glory and glitter that, that people make it out to be. And uh, it, it's nice to be able to get a glimpse of that. You know? So thanks for the time, Dean. And it's a pleasure meeting you for the first time. No, it's been, it's been a pleasure. It's, uh, no, it's nice, to, it's, well, nice to speak to you both, but it's great to speak to you again, Chris. And like you say, it's been, it's been a long time, mate. It's, uh, 18 years is uh, a long time. But it's, good, look, it's great to see you guys doing so well. I must admit, it's, um, it's brilliant. So... No, it's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed talking about it and uh, hopefully we'll keep in contact and we can do it again sometime, whatever you want. Any help I can do, uh, provide you with me, brilliant. Fantastic. Dean Hammond, folks, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, please do subscribe to our channel on YouTube, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts and look for us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. And with that, we'll catch you guys on the next Football Friday.